the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the program. It is a brand new week. This is the Monday edition of The Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And this is a program, as you know, dedicated to taking your phone calls, answering your Bible questions, questions about stuff going on in your life. I've got a good mix of all those questions. Um, but we appreciate more than you know your phone calls. If you have a question, you can dial 210-340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com. Or you can use our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. And remember, if you are in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the Call Now banner at the top of the screen, and you will be connected directly to our studio producer. Uh, Tonight, we got some stuff going on here. Our men's, women's, and youth Bible studies are all together at 7 o'clock. They worship together, and then they separate into different locations. So we'd love to have you join us. Ladies, you can watch at calvarysa.com, and I have it on good authority that Linda McMillan is teaching tonight, and she's awesome. I get to say that a lot because there's a lot of awesome people that God surrounds me with. So that's all tonight here at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. hope you had a great weekend for many of us. It was Communion Sunday, a very special Sunday um, for all of us, we get an opportunity to fellowship with the Lord. And uh, I hope you had a great day Sunday, and I hope people got saved at your church. Let's go to a phone call as we begin. Christina on line one from San Antonio. Thank you for calling. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ron. Thanks for taking the call. Mm-hmm. My pleasure. Uh, just a quick question. Uh, your thoughts on... Just what's going on around the world politically right now, I know it's a little touchy to talk about the relationship between us as Christians and politics around the world, but as we start to see just the rise of that kind of socialistic, communistic, uh, just the tyrannical global movement going on, how do you feel we can respond to that? Possibly from a leadership position too, just in terms, and I'd like to kind of uh, reference, for example, like the the Ottawa, the Freedom Truckers in Ottawa right now? Yeah, I'm trying to follow that a little bit today, Christina, and um, the information I'm getting is sort of conflicting, so I'm not really uh, equipped to to answer the questions, but it's an amazing thing. I even got a report. Now, this is probably not true, but to tell you how, how... out of balance, these reports are. I'm getting. Uh, they, they supposedly had snipers surrounding some of the the truckers. Um, uh, so it just it, we live in a crazy world, you know. Christine, I'm not so concerned with the political things that are going on in the world. 
uh, political discourse and political division has always been uh, a, a, a fact of life. Um, with with the Olympics going on now, you see the atrocities that are being committed in China, and the Olympics are just going on like it's no big deal, um, uh, almost in denial. And, and unfortunately, some United States uh, media. Uh, are cooperating with them. We're, 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 we're simply not telling the truth about what's going on. And I think, and I, I hope, I, I hate to sound like such a, a cynic here, but, but it is shameful. It is absolutely shameful that we've lost our moral compass. And yet that's exactly the world that the Apostle Paul said that we would live in in these last days. So I'm not so concerned about the political um, ramifications. What what concerns me even more is this, uh, and and I'm going to be very critical here of our country, um, the, the way um, free speech has been clamped down upon. Um, I, I'm just thinking out loud here now, Christina, and then I'm going to turn this conversation to Jesus in a minute. But um, I'm thinking about the attacks on Joe Rogan that are going on right now and the enormous pressure to take him off the air because he's saying some things that people don't like. And what, what affects me personally is this whole movement against him. And I'm not a Rogan fan. Um, He needs Jesus Christ. I believe he needs Jesus. But this whole attack on Rogan started with some old hippies. Now I'm an old hippie, not a hippie anymore, but I used to be just like these guys, Neil Young and Judy Collins and, and, and so many others. Um, you know, we, we, when, when we were teenagers and, and young adults, we were screaming for free speech. And now it's some of those who once were screaming for free speech who are now screaming to censor free speech. And, and I just think that bodes very poorly for the condition our world is in. Um, Paul and I have a saying in our home. One, we have several, but this is one of them. If you don't believe the truth, you'll believe anything. And we've got these godless people who are believing um, in anything. And, and uh, you know, we just get one lie after another. And, and it disturbs me that, one, we're, as Christians, we're so biblically illiterate that we can buy into the lies. But secondly, um, we've, we've sort of replaced the kingdom to which we belong for the kingdom of this world that we don't really belong in. We're supposed to be pilgrims and strangers in this world. We're not supposed to be concerned about what's going on in the world. Now, we should pray. We should pray for our leaders. The Bible tells us to do that. We should pray um, and we should vote. But I think the one thing that we've forgotten, and this is, this is almost without exception, Christians have forgotten that this world is not where we live. It's where God has stationed us. We live in a military town, as you know, Christina. And, um, you know, when, when a soldier gets orders, when an airman gets orders, they, they go where they're told to go. Uh, Jesus gives us orders. We're to look up. We're not to look out. And so the things that are going on in the world, they're distressing. Uh, my heart hurts for the deception. But it is a deception that we should have been prepared for. And the sad truth is that we're not. Christians who are walking with Jesus, I say all the time, just be with Jesus. Christians that are walking with Jesus should not be surprised. And this is the very time, Acts chapter 17, verse 26. This is the very time and the very place God has put us so that we can be lights in this dark world. And I think the focus on politics and all the things that are going on, Christina, is distracting us from our mission and I'm all about, I'm only about the mission. Do I want a more conservative politics? Do I want a strong economy? Do I want uh, the freedom to speak our minds that our country was, was founded on? Of course I do. But no matter what, this is the time and this is the place where God has put us so that we can be a light, not a light for a Republican Party, not a light for conservative governorships, but a light for Jesus Christ. That needs to be our focus. So uh, I'm I'm sure, Christina, we share very similar political views. Uh, I am a conservative man. However, 
when it comes to Jesus, I'm pretty radical. And that's what we should be. Christina, it's really good to hear from you. I haven't heard your voice in a very, very, very long time. It's good to know you're doing well. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from John. Uh, Hi, Pastor Ron. I was not familiar with Ravi Zacharias prior to his death. I learned at that time that seemingly... uh, Large numbers of people here at Calvary Chapel San Antonio were big fans. Then, of course, came the news of impropriety. And now I understand that the various publishers of his work, as well known as his own RZIM Ministries, have essentially erased his name from their files. Uh, John, before I continue, they had no choice. They had no choice. I'll talk about that in a moment. Subsequently, I've come across commentaries by Ravi. Is it appropriate to toss them out, or is that a silly response if his teachings are constructive? When I was a brand new Christian, I learned a great deal from David Hawking through his Biola Hour radio programs. Uh, As you know, years later, he stepped down from his pulpit due to inappropriate behavior. Later, Pastor Chuck Smith brought him on staff uh, at his church. Obviously, I don't approve of Hawking's inappropriate behavior, but I didn't toss the various books and studies of his on my bookshelf. What are your thoughts on this? John, I appreciate the opportunity to talk about this because this is a, a wide-ranging um, uh, struggle that, that I've had in my own life. Uh, I loved Ravi Zacharias's uh, teachings. I loved his approach. I loved his zeal. Uh, I was a big fan, and I don't mean uh, in, a, in a negative way. I just really, really appreciated his ministry. And um, obviously, over so many decades, there was a lot, I mean, a lot of fruit. It has always been difficult for me personally, and I will not lay down a law for anybody to follow. But when I find out that somebody is not living what they're teaching, I no longer can listen to them. I no longer want to read from them. Uh, Ravi has some commentaries and his teachings on, on, on many things are wonderful teachings. Uh, I have no doubt that Ravi was a believer, that Ravi is in heaven. Uh, Ravi suffered uh, a great deal. And, and when he stood before Jesus, um, believe me, believe me, when he bowed uh, his knee and, and his tongue confessed that Jesus is Lord, he had a lot to answer for. But frankly, I don't want anybody teaching me the Bible when they're not able to live it themselves. Now, I, I realize what a radical statement that is. But let me explain why. And you brought up David Hawking. Uh, I didn't. So I'll, I'll use him as an example. I was a brand new Christian. Uh, David Hawking's radio program when I got saved was called Solid Rock Radio. And I thought David Hawking was the best teacher on radio. I didn't miss his show. I mean, I was studying so much. I'm a brand new Christian. I can't get enough. I listened every day to his show. And, and uh, you know, back then you couldn't just go on the Internet and, and, and find his teachings. So I was so faithful every day to, to carve out the time to listen to his radio program. I remember one day I was at the gym and I was on a treadmill and somebody had left the Orange County Register, the newspaper. And so I opened it up while I was exercising, started to look at it, and the headline just floored me. And it was um, a prominent pastor um, caught in adultery and explained that he was stepping down. And so I couldn't wait to see who it was. And it, when, it, when I found it was David Hawking, I was devastated. I mean, I was devastated. Now, I was a new Christian about eight months into my walk with Jesus. Two months prior, I knew that God had called me to be a pastor. And I remember breaking out into tears. I I went to get Paul at the gym and said, Paul, look at this. If he can't do it, how can I do it? And, And the devil used David Hawking to try to keep me from even trying to be a pastor. Now, David has been restored. He's never been a pastor again. He's still a good teacher. Uh, but but you know what? I'm just not interested in listening to people who aren't taking their own counsel. And so for me, I would not, I will not ever look at a Ravi 
um, uh, teaching again or a commentary again. I'm not interested in his books. Uh, if he wasn't walking with Jesus, I don't care. Now, again, I realize that's a pretty radical response, John. But the point for me is um, I want people, I'd rather have people that weren't quite as good at teaching or communicating, but who love Jesus enough to obey him. Those are the people that I want to hear from. Those are the people that can help me finish my course well. So uh, that's what I would do. I wouldn't listen to them or read them again. Uh, But uh, that that decision is yours. Thank you, John. I appreciate the question. Let's go to Barbara on line one from San Antonio. Barbara, thank you for calling. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ron. It's Barbara W. And I just say that because there's... (laughs) But I have a question about two scriptures, and I've probably read these scriptures many times before, but this time words are jumping out at me. Um, from Exodus fifteen sixteen, 16, um, the scripture says, Fear and dread will fall on them by the greatness of your arm. They will be as still as a stone till your people pass over, O Lord, till your people pass over whom you have purchased. And so I wonder about that word purchase. I just never thought of the Lord uh, having purchased Israel. I know he delivered them, but that word I'm, I'm just trying to understand. And it's, again, in Psalm seventy-eight fifty-four where it says, And he brought them to his holy border, this mountain which his right hand had acquired. So the cattle on a thousand hills belong to the Lord, so why would he have to acquire? It's just that these two words indicate a transaction, and I'm just trying to understand what the Lord performed, that he purchased Israel, Mm-hmm. and that he acquired a mountain. Am I being too nitpicky? Nope, no, not at all. And and I think I understand the question. Barbara, there's two things that we have to understand. Just like you and I have been purchased. Um, uh, let me start there, and then I'll go back to, to the Israelites. Uh, you and I have been purchased. We're not our own. Paul writes to the Corinthians, we're bought with a price. And of course, the price that, that bought us was the blood of Jesus Christ. So we were created by God, but we were also purchased out of our sin. Well, the same thing is true with Israel. And so what he's saying here now to the Israelites as they're they're going through the wilderness, he's saying that I know you're going to be afraid. I know the leaders of Edom and Moab and, and all of the other countries around, um, they're, 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 they're going to come after you. But I'm going to cause them to be so afraid that they won't dare touch you. Terror and dread will fall upon them. And then it says, by the power of your arm, they will be still as a stone until your people pass by. The people you bought pass by. So how did he buy Israel? Well, he bought Israel out of the world by asking them to come to him by faith. Now remember, before the cross, Barbara, people were saved just like we who uh, come after the cross are saved. We're saved by faith. Abraham believed God. And it was credited unto him to righteousness. The credited is also a transaction word. So the credited by faith, they were credited with forgiveness of sins. By faith, they were made righteous. And that's the purchase. That's how, how we were purchased. So uh, it, it's not like he just decided by us and, and there was nothing that we had to do. We entered into covenant agreement with him just like Israel did. Now remember, Israel, the sign of the covenant, was circumcision. And so God is protecting his people and he's protecting them because they're his people, people that he purchased. Secondly, this is a look forward. Um, you know, I often say that the people before Jesus look forward to the cross to get saved. We who come after Jesus look backwards at the cross. It's easier for us than it was for them. But um, when when um, they were bought from their sin, they, they also had a sacrificial system that would be given to them through the law. Um, God simply allowed them um, 
to walk with him. He protected them. And he did it because they were his people and they were his people by faith, just like us. So make no mistake, it is a business transaction. When Jesus cried out on the cross, it is finished. That was a business term to tell us that the debt is paid. And so this is a transaction. And Barbara, this is the greatest transaction in the world. In Exodus, they're looking forward to this transaction. Remember, we look backwards at this transaction. On the cross, Jesus made a deal with you. And he made a deal with me. And here's what the deal was. You give me all of your filth, all of your sin, and I will give you all of my righteousness and my perfection. And in that case, that's exactly what was the purchase. Here is a called-in question from Bertie. Bertie. Bertie in the Hill Country. She wants to know your opinion of where we are in America compared to Sodom and Gomorrah, moral standpoint. Um, uh, Bertie, I think that we are more accountable than Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember, Sodom and Gomorrah... um, They didn't have the knowledge of God that we did. Now, certainly they knew right and wrong, and God's judgment of them was just. Uh, But we here in America, we have been so blessed by God. We have been abundantly blessed by God. I mean, in in less than 300 years, we have been, uh, for the most part, the ruling, uh, the, the reigning empire on earth. We have become... Um, until recently, perhaps the most powerful and the richest nation on the face of the earth, uh, before we started borrowing money, before China and others started lending it to us. Um, and, and you see, God had a purpose for us. God had a purpose for us. And I believe with all of my heart that purpose was to be Israel's protector. Now, our country's older than Israel returning to their homeland in 1948, but it was God raising up the United States of America to a position of power. And we're the country that made it possible for Israel to be regathered as a nation. The dry bones will live again. And and in this particular case, uh, God used the United States after they came back into their home country in 1948. Uh, We have been their primary supporter and their primary protector in all of the world. And we were always Israel's biggest and strongest ally until Barack Obama became the president of the United States. Even Democratic presidents before were Israel's supporters. They would not have dared to go against Israel. But all of that changed with Barack Obama. And we have been anti-Israel ever since. And God's blessing, it's like Ichabod. The glory has departed, and uh, you see what happens. And because we have sinned uh, ourselves out of relevance uh, we see things the way they are. So compared to Sodom and Gomorrah, Bertie, we are we are in a really, really accountable place. To whom much is given, Jesus said, much more is required. And I think that describes uh, the United States of America perfectly. Thank you for the question. I appreciate you listening to the program. Um, Three four, we're inside three minutes. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. Here's somebody named Humble. What a good name. Humble says, if you do not struggle with lust, is it okay to watch movies that contain nudity or sexual content? Um, Romans 14.23, Humble says, anything not of faith is sin. So that's something that you're going to have to decide. Now, this is something that you need to really take into prayer because it seems like when I get this question or questions like it, is it okay if a Christian does this? Usually it's because the Holy Spirit's already tugging on your heart. So here's what you've got to do. You've got to remember your witness. You've got to remember to throw off everything that hinders. Now you say you don't struggle with lust. Our Bible says beware. Those of us who say we're strong or, or we stand. Because if that's based in pride... Believe me, the devil is going to use it to make us fall. So we need to be careful with things like this. I know why watching movies that contain nudity or sexual content is interesting. It's because your flesh loves it. So you've got to decide whether you're going to satisfy your flesh 
or your spirit. Now, having said all of that, this is something you've got to wrestle with God. Our New Testament says, make no provision for the flesh. Make no provision for the flesh. So those are the decisions that you have to make based on the word of God. And just my opinion here, humble, is that the Holy Spirit is already speaking to you. Now, I don't watch movies that you describe. I don't watch movies that take God's name in vain. I don't go to R-rated movies. I don't do that because, not because I'm a prude. I don't do that because I don't want to run into somebody that goes to my church and calls me pastor. I don't want to run into him at the same movie. So I, I just, I, I'm just careful. I'd rather be with Jesus. And you know what? You don't really miss anything at all. So this is one of those things where you really have to search your heart. God will give you the wisdom that you need. All you have to do is search your heart. So humble, I hope that makes sense to you. Appreciate the question very, very much. I know sometimes people want me to give them yes or no answers. Hey, I'm not the Holy Spirit. But when the Holy Spirit's knocking on the door of your heart, you better open the door and pay attention. We've got 30 minutes left on this Monday program, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. This is the word to stand up for life. We'll be back in two minutes. back to the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back to the program 340-9585 for your live calls and questions here is our first question for this half hour from daniel um hi pastor ron which prophecy is matthew referring to about Jesus being called a Nazarene, I can't seem to find it. Daniel, this is really a difficult question. Uh, It's difficult because um, what the passage of Scripture says, let me read it. It's uh, chapter 2 of... of, um, Matthew, and it is... Let me get there. Um, It says that he... Verse 23 says, He went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, plural. He will be called a Nazarene. Now, there's no specific prophecy in the Old Testament that we have. So this doesn't necessarily mean that it is a prophecy in our Bibles. It could have been something that the prophets um, said that wasn't recorded for us in our Bibles. Or it could be, and this I think, Daniel, is more likely, it could be sort of a consensus, and it was a message with a meaning. Now, it's so difficult. I'm going to read to you um, something that, um, i got to find it here. I'm going to read, this is from F.F. Bruce, who is my favorite, favorite, favorite commentator of all time. He says, if there was any specific passage in Matthew's mind, it was likely Isaiah 11.1. It says, there shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The Hebrew word translated branch sounds like nazir, Jerome, one of the early church fathers, following the Jewish scholars of his time, believed this reference to be mainly to Isaiah 11, where mention is made of a branch that shall spring out of Jesse's root. The epithet Nazarene will thus mean the man of Nazareth, the town of the little shoot. Now, we know from John's Gospel that Nazareth had a really bad reputation. Can any good thing come from Nazareth, we're told? And so the idea here is that there was a message being communicated here. Now, I'm also, uh, Daniel, going to read my own commentary on this, um, just to tell you how I dealt with this. But this isn't a place that we can specifically link to a specific prophet. 
Um, in Matthew chapter 2, I wrote uh, in my commentary, the closing verses today stress the fulfillment of prophecy. I said, notice it here in verse 20 and 21. It is Jesus who assumes priority in the, in the narrative. From this point forward, this book is all about, it is only about Jesus. And then I closed with this. I said, prophecy had to be fulfilled that Jesus was called a Nazarene. Now, this isn't a Nazarite. That's a vow. This is a Nazarene. And Nazareth, we know from John, had a bad reputation. And then here's the application for me. I said, aren't you glad that Jesus didn't come from the right side of the tracks? I love that. The fact that Jesus, um, when he could have gone anywhere, he's God. But but he went to live with normal people from from a side of town that nobody would visit, no decent person would visit. And the reason is because he came for people like you and me. In order to identify with us, he had to come from a place, a place like we've come from. And then we just marvel at how wonderful his love is. But, Daniel, there is no specific... Um, prophecy that we can link it to um, doesn't mean that it casts any doubt on the veracity of the, of the scripture, but it was just sort of a collective idea. Matthew's gospel from the Jewish perspective was all about Jesus being the one to fulfill prophecy and that he came from Nazareth, a low place was, was important to fulfilling those things. And that's the best I can do. This is one of those Bible passages that until we get to heaven, we won't have clarity on. Hope that's okay. That's the best I can do. Here is a question from our email inbox from Christine. She says, hello from Massachusetts, Pastor Ron. Christine, thank you for writing from Massachusetts. She says, I have a couple of questions about Exodus 24, 11 through 13. First, I realize they are seeing Jesus because the Father is unapproachable light, or lives in unapproachable light, and to see him is to die. But it says they beheld God and they ate and they drank. Does this mean they ate with Jesus? I wonder how they could even swallow in his presence. Do you think Jesus ate with them? And then she says, secondly, in verse 13, it says, so Moses arose with Joshua, his servant, and Moses went up to the mountain of God. Did Joshua go up with Moses? Thank you, Pastor Ron. I don't get to listen to your show live, but I do listen to the recorded broadcast while working. Your blessing to my days. May God continue to bless your ministry. Thank you so much, Christine. Uh, I appreciate that. A couple of things. Um, in this Exodus passage, uh, clearly anybody in the Old Testament who saw God saw Jesus. John chapter 12, verse 23 explains that Isaiah in chapter 6 saw Jesus. So, you're right. The only way that they could see God who lives in unapproachable light is through the person of Jesus Christ. So, when it says here in verse 11, and I'm going to take just a minute because I like this. He's viewing uh, this picture of heaven and he says, but God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God and they ate and drank. Now, why would they eat and drink? Because that's what fellowship is all about. We come to the table of communion yesterday at our church, Christine, and the fellowship was sweet. Jesus came. He became a man to have fellowship with us. Now, here's just me thinking out loud, okay? I think this is a counterpart scripture to the New Testament Transfiguration story. Um, on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus' glory was seen in a way that Peter, James, and John, who saw, could remain alive. And they, they saw the kingdom of God in its fullness on that mountain. It was a profound event that affected them for the rest of their lives. But when they saw Jesus... And in the Exodus story, it says they ate and drank with him. The whole import there is the fellowship. God's purpose was twofold. He would point to the communion sacraments as our way of fellowshipping with God and to change the way Israel viewed God. That was the second purpose. He wanted them to know that he was good, that he was nice. And in the presence of Jesus, we can approach the throne of, of grace with confidence. 
And that's exactly what he was doing. I can't imagine. You said, could they, could they swallow? I mean, if you, if you were sitting there eating and drinking and, and, and Jesus was there and it would have been this glorious spiritual revelation. This was grace. This was a picture of grace. Now, remember, Israel's relationship with God from this point forward would always be by law. And this points to a time, that's why I say this is a counterpart to the transfiguration story. This points to a time when we can all walk with God. If you've been listening to the program or listening to the, the, the archives, one of the neat things is I say all the time, just be with Jesus. And I can walk with Jesus, I can talk to him, I can eat with him, I can do all of those things, Christine. And I can do them because he's made the way. Well, in the Old Testament, he made the way as well. So that's what that was. Now, regarding Joshua, yes, Joshua did go up with Moses, but he didn't go all the way up. Joshua, as wonderful as he was, was not invited. Moses went with God alone. But Joshua went up. And this is a pattern that Joshua would continue for the rest of his life. When Moses would go up and be with the Lord, and he'd come down with his face on fire, you know, glowing, and, and, and Joshua would stay there. Now, he couldn't go up, but he would stay there as close as he could. He wanted to be as close to the experience that Moses had as he could. And this was God's way of preparing Joshua to take over for Moses. And, of course, we read about that in chapter 1 of his book. Wonderful question, Christine. Thank you. And I really do appreciate very much that you um, are listening from Massachusetts. Let's go to Universal City and talk with Jim on line one. Jim, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Okay, thank you, sir. I was driving down the road and I heard your comment to a previous caller, and I've heard that before. And I'm kind of a straightforward, simple kind of guy. And so I like to actually see things in black and white for myself. And when a gentleman was talking to you about people in the Old Testament, and you said they were looking forward to Jesus on the cross, and the people now look backward too, I was wondering, is there a verse that says precisely that without me having to interpret something? And I'm not in any way challenging you or contradicting you, nothing like that. I'm just hoping that you can tell me an actual verse that can read that says, the people in the Old Testament are looking forward to the cross, something like that. Yeah, Jim, thank you. And you can challenge me anytime you want. You're respectful, no problem with that. Um, no, there's no verse that says that. It's a conclusion. Um, I, the, the example I gave a few moments ago was um, um, Genesis chapter 12, and it's repeated again in chapter 15, where Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So he was he was justified or made righteous by believing by faith in the promises of God, believing in the word of God. And the only way you can do that is to include that he was looking forward. We know in the New Testament from Hebrews that Abraham was looking for a city whose builder and maker was God. So he's always looking forward. He was a pilgrim. He never had a home uh, to call his own in this life. He was a wanderer throughout. And, and that was looking forward to that city that was permanent, that city whose builder and maker was God. So that's a conclusion. Now, uh, clearly, you and I, to get saved, we look back at the finished work of Christ on the cross. In the Old Testament, they had to look forward because there was no way for their sins to be forgiven. There was a, an elaborate system of sacrifices, uh, but they only covered over sins from year to year. And the only way that they could be righteous before God, um, especially um, men like Moses who, who spoke with God like a man speaks to a friend face to face. Um, he didn't see him face to face, but he spoke to him like that. Well, his faith, his obedience, which demonstrated that he believed God, would then have him look forward to the cross. 
So the the only way to reconcile how Old Testament people were saved by faith is that they believed God. And then when I said earlier that it was a, an accounting term, they were credited with righteousness. It didn't actually happen. Later in Luke chapter 16, we see Father Abraham uh, in, in the place called Paradise or Abraham's bosom. And uh, uh, that was the home of all of the Old Testament saints who who b- b- believed and were credited with righteousness by faith. So they got saved the same way that we do. And for me, Jim, the best way to illustrate that is I just look at the cross as sort of the, the, the central point in all history. People who lived before Jesus was crucified had to look forward to that cross People who lived when we do and and after uh, the cross of Christ, 32 A.D., they look or we look backwards. One other comment here for Abraham, and I think he's uh, uh, the best example because he's called the father of our faith. Um, Hebrews chapter 11 speaks about uh, Abraham quite a bit. But you remember in chapter 22 of Genesis when Abraham uh, was taking his son Isaac to sacrifice him to God. Um, when he took him to uh, that sacrifice, the place of sacrifice, by the way, it would have been the threshing floor of Aaronah, the place later where Jesus himself was crucified. Um, Isaac, not a little boy, a young man, uh, would have said, Father, we've got the wood, we've got the ropes, we've got everything we need for a sacrifice. But what about the lamb? And Abraham made a statement, literally in Hebrew it says this, God will provide himself a lamb. That's looking forward to the cross even then. And of course we know that God never intended to have Abraham sacrifice his son at all, but it was a test for Abraham. So, Jim, good question, and you can challenge me anytime you like. I appreciate it very, very much. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Valerie. She says, uh, I'm a young woman who has noticed that a lot of young men have begun painting their nails, wearing makeup, and getting more and more piercings. As a woman, it feels wrong to me. Is there a biblical way to think about this? Yeah, Valerie, I, you know, cultural trends um, will always feel wrong. I remember, uh, I'm old enough, I remember when people first started getting tattoos. When I grew up, somebody had a tattoo, it was like, were you in prison? You know, it was one of those things. And it, and it, it makes people very uncomfortable. Um, but then it sort of wears on you. And now everybody's wearing tattoos. Um, I wouldn't, I'd be careful of judging young men who are painting their nails and wearing makeup and getting more and more piercings. Uh, We want to think the best. Love believes the best. Um, But you know what? If some of those young men are trying to get into your life, it would be an interesting place to start a conversation. Um, When people do that to themselves, I find that they want to talk about it. I find that they really want to talk about it. it it's sort of a cry for attention. And uh, I've, I've asked a lot of young men, and, and uh, we have a couple of young men in the church that I've noticed who are painting their nails, and I think that's really, really weird. So rather than just look at them, I ask them. Now, I haven't seen men wearing makeup yet. Now, of course, we live in a time where men are calling themselves women and dressing up like women and vice versa. Um, and, and you're right, it feels wrong. But rather than just speculate, talk to people. And I think what you'll find, Valerie, is that you're getting a lot of opportunities to witness about your faith. Paul and I, we went to a restaurant, a restaurant that we go to all the time. And um, now I don't see well, so I, I often say dumb things. But uh, I, I noticed this, this, what I thought was a woman um, coming into the restaurant, and she sat down at a table. And I said, Paula, that woman over there has the biggest feet I've ever seen on a woman. And I mean, he had huge feet. And Paula just started laughing at me. And she said, that's a man. 
I said, oh, no, I thought because he's wearing a skirt and, and had uh, longish hair. And I thought it, I thought it was a, a woman. And, um, you know, th- those are just, this is the world that we live in. So, uh, you know, you don't have to go out with them, marry them. Um, but, boy, it's certainly an opportunity to talk with them. And I think uh, many times they would appreciate that rather than just people who just stare. So uh, when I see somebody who's really tatted up, uh, I like to talk to them about their tattoos. It's easy to get people to talk about that. I just say, did that hurt? I bet that really hurt. We we had a, a young woman at a restaurant that had uh, a tattoo that went around her, right, right over her elbow. And I said, oh, that had to hurt. And she almost started crying, thinking about how much it hurt. But they want to talk about it. And so it gives me an opportunity, and and it just it kind of frees us from judging or anything like that. So if you're uncomfortable with it, that's okay. But remember that the people who are dressing that way are loved by God. They're loved by God. He loves them so much. And so it's an opportunity to talk with them, to share Jesus with them, and to pray for them. So that's the best I can do. It's just really hard. When you start disqualifying people uh, because of the way they look, uh, we're going to miss out on a lot of people who have a lot to offer uh, in our lives. Good question, Valerie. Thank you very, very much. Anonymous says, What can I do when a friend uh, of mine is involved with prophecy that goes against the Bible? I'm worried for him. Uh, Anonymous, because he's a friend, you got to tell him. You got to tell him. Um, um, I don't know whether it's somebody exercising gift of prophecy, which is okay, or somebody uh, who is identifying themselves of, as a prophet, which is not okay. But here's what you do with your friend: you sit him down and you talk to him about it with an open Bible. Say this is contrary to what the Bible says. And because it's contrary to the Bible says, we know it's not true. And just tell somebody, if you believe this person is a prophet, if you believe in this prophecy that's counterproductive, then what I want you to do is really pray about this and read your Bible because I'm worried because you seem to be involved with or agreeing with prophecies that are not consistent with our Bibles. And that's what you do with good friends. Good question. Thank you very, very much. We are inside five minutes. This half hour has really gone fast. Here is a question from Andrew. How can I reconcile? Oh, this will be the last one for the day. This is a tough one. Uh, How do I reconcile wives submitting to husbands and the call to submit to one another in Ephesians chapter 5? Ephesians chapter 5. Now, now this is so misunderstood. Every, Every man knows... Ephesians 5.22, wives, submit to your husbands. We even leave out the as unto the Lord part. Wives, never, ever let your husbands leave out the as unto the Lord part. But, but in verse 21, out of fear of God, or reverence for God, we're to submit one to another. That's stressing, Andrew, the partnership aspect of marriage. Two become one. And when the husband in a marriage insists on being the leader, you do what I say, well, then he's, he's still got two people. And remember, we're one. How can two walk together unless they agree to do so? So what, what wives submitting to husbands means is that the, the husband is responsible to God to be the spiritual leader in the household. But a leader isn't a dictator. And a leader realizes, if that leader is wise, the leader realizes that he needs help. He needs prayer. He needs the cooperation of his wife. So when issues pop up, then what we need to do is together, as one flesh, we pray about what God wants to do. It's not about what the man wants to do, what the woman wants to do. It's about a man and a, and a wife together finding the will of God. And that's what submitting to one another uh, out of reverence for God is all about. So, yes, there is a head in the home. It's the husband over the wife. But the husband needs to remember that the woman that Jesus gave you is a tool, a helper. And Jesus is your head, and you have to submit to him. He wouldn't have you submit 
or he wouldn't have you be a leader who wouldn't consider your partner. If a decision has to be made, then that responsibility falls upon the man. But partnership is the way we ought to walk. You know, Paula and I, we've been doing this now for a long time. And I can tell you, even now to this day, that I don't make important decisions without first running them through Paula. I know Paula loves me and knows she has only my best interest at heart. She wants only God's will for my life. And so if, if the Lord is giving me some direction and it's something that, that I'm unsure about, then, then I'm going to sit down with Paula and ask her to pray. I want her counsel. I want her direction. Most, imp- most importantly, what I want is to know that she's with me. When we take a step in faith, I don't want to be on my own. And in order to do that, then we submit to one another. And I can tell you this. uh, We just made an announcement about starting our free restaurant. Um, That's a crazy thing. I'm absolutely insane for doing this, except for God is directing it. And if I would have said to Paula, I think it's time, Paula. Would you pray about this? Um, If she just said, well, I'm just not hearing from the Lord. I just don't think so yet. I wouldn't have taken offense at that. I wouldn't have thought, you're never with me. You're, you know, why are you always against me? I would have just assumed that was God slowing me down. And sometimes I need to be slowed down. So for me, Andrew, uh, I, I'm just, I need Paula's input. I need her support. I need her prayers. And that's what submitting to one another is. Thank you for the calls. I appreciate it. You've been listening to The Word to Stand Up for Life. Uh, Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630 Word. we got men's, women's, and youth Bible studies tonight at 7. We'll see you then. Bye-bye. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4 And Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here. Here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never before seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. Salemnow.com.